Welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. Speaking today with Adam Aja, Assistant Curator of Collections at the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East. Among his many tasks at the museum, he manages a collection of roughly 40,000 objects. But aside from his work with collections, Aja is an archaeologist. Today, I wanted to ask him what it's like to hunt for treasures from our ancient past and how he got into it. I also wanted to learn more about the value of archaeological collections like the one he manages. Here he is. How did you become interested in archaeology? I began in archaeology in college. Um, sort of that's where my love affair began. I took an internship with the museum while I was at, at, at university. We would go out to construction sites, explore for a couple of weeks to see if there was any, any material of historical importance on the site before they began construction. And I was immediately smitten. Um, it was sort of the perfect combination of the physical activity and an intellectual exercise for me. And I love puzzles, and it's kind of a big 3D puzzle through time. I don't think anybody that pulls something out of the ground that hasn't seen the light of day in thousands of years cannot be smitten. It's, it's exciting to discover this. And then when you find those rare pieces that are complete or a personal piece that would have been worn on, on by an individual, like a piece of jewelry or earrings or a part of a necklace or a weapon or a whole vessel that's kind of wedged in the corner of a foundation that had been lost to time and you and you reveal that it's it's exciting it's simply exciting and it doesn't matter if it's a simple mundane piece or something elaborate and exciting and I've been working in this field a long time I, I think my first excavation in the Middle East was 1991 so I still get excited about it it's still that same moment of discovery is exhilarating. What's the strangest thing you've ever found? I've been uh, working a long time, and so I've seen a lot of different things. Everything from the mundane to the bizarre. Usually you find a lot of ceramic sherds. This is the discarded trash of the ancient world. I'm particularly proud of my discovery of the Philistine Cemetery at Ashkelon, but I also found a four-horned altar made out of basically mud covered with plaster, which was very bizarre and rare. But perhaps the strangest thing might be the puppies buried in cooking pots below the floors of houses. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little strange. I, yeah, that's strange and sad. Yeah, we found the puppy. They weren't. They were in cooking pots, but they had not been eaten. They were articulated, so their the bones were in the place as they would have been, as if it, it had simply de been put in whole and, and decayed. It wasn't just part of a meal. This isn't 
very common, but it recurred several times on the site that I was excavating. We don't know why this was a practice, but it was a practice in multiple locations, multiple homes in this area in the Iron Age at the site of Ashkelon. It's uh, probably some ceremonial event uh, rather than practical. It being hidden below the floor, uh, it wouldn't be something that people would see, so it wasn't an object of visual meaning, so there must have been some sort of symbolic meaning behind it that we simply don't have any real understanding since they didn't have texts that we can read to explain why this was done. And we don't know about this practice in a lot of other places. There are some other parallels that we've been able to identify, but it's just a, a, one of these bizarre practices that you encounter. They also buried some donkey skulls on the corners of buildings as well. And that was kind of strange. On the corners of buildings. That's very right, strange. Yeah, like on a foundation, around the foundation of the house. So donkey skulls and these puppies. A little weird. <laughs> it's totally weird. Super fascinating, though. Aside from your work at the museum and as an archaeologist in the field, are you a collector of things? I'm not really a major collector in, in any in any way. I have a variety of interests, so I've acquired things related to those interests that I've scattered around my home or for my travels. I also enjoy making and building things, so I have a an odd collection of random bits that I can tap into for supplies when I'm perhaps making something like a costume for my daughter. But um, like most scholars, I also have collections of books and things like that, but no major collection. Were you ever a collector as a, as a child? No, no, not really. Unless you, unless you count my collection of Star Wars action figures. Well, that counts. Oh, okay, okay. Well, then I'm definitely, I was a serious collector when I was, when I was nine. <laughs> How many did you have? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I had, I had a large set. Oh, and, and I had, I did also have the Star Wars uh, collection. What are those? Those trading cards. Yes, right. You, you, tra- you put them in order and uh, oh. curate your own little display, right? Like Star Wars baseball cards. Like Star Wars baseball cards, right? <laughs> right. Right. I was a big Star Wars fan when I was a kid. I still am as an adult, I suppose. Yeah, as you should be. As yeah. as everyone should be. Yeah. Why are archaeological collections important? Archaeological collections can remain important years after they've been removed from the soil because technology and science continues to advance. And we don't know how new discoveries can be applied to these old collections. In fact, that's one of the great strengths of the H-Main collection is that we have these almost abandoned or previously published archaeological collections that we continually tap into for new study. For example, I use a portable x-ray fluorescence device to examine archaeological metals. This is something that can discover the elemental composition of that metal. You can discover alloying agents. And and this is something that did not exist when these early collections were identified. You could make a visual inspection of these objects 
and you could guess at what their composition was, but now you can, we can know definitively what they are because we're applying these new techniques. And because a lot of this material is fragmentary, these archaeological collections are not all museum quality display pieces, it's easier to take samples from the fragments to do this scientific examination. Whereas display museum pieces, most museum curators are not willing to cut a piece off of a complete statue in order to understand its composition or its manufacturing techniques or techniques of manufacturing. But these archaeological collections can still be used for that. And also many archaeological collections have not been published completely. A lot of projects publish a portion or representative sample of the collection, but don't have the ability to publish all aspects of it. Perhaps the collection was abandoned, someone left the field, and so it hasn't been published. And, and so we can return to these old collections and gain, gain some new information, advance the publication, advance the knowledge of them. Some regions are not safe to go to. Uh, we have a large, uh, large amount of material from northern Iraq, around Kirkuk, Iraq. That's not particularly safe for a lot of Westerners to go to. And we can provide access to archaeologists and scholars who want to study this material, but can't go and conduct new archaeological excavations in those regions. So there's a lot of knowledge still to be gained from exploring old collections. Can you talk about the value of the H-Main collection in particular? What's particularly special about it? Our collection is a real strength in ceramics. Ceramics are the, the ubiquitous garbage of the ancient world. It's, it's everywhere. Right now we have glass and plastic, and when you, you're done with your garbage, you, you pitch it. You throw it out this curbside collections that are taken away. In the ancient world, they had ceramics. They did have glass at later time period, but they had a lot of ceramics and they would throw these out into the streets. They would reuse them at times. So this, this broken ceramics are all over the place. We have a lot of sherd collections, but we also have some whole vessels. Uh, we also have blown glass, a lot of blown glass. We have statues, we have figurines. The collection was really founded on the idea of teaching Semitic languages and cultures, but also Semitic languages. So we have a lot of inscribed material with Semitic languages uh, on them. Uh, in particular, a great collection of cuneiform tablets. This is the, the, the language of what is now basically modern-day Iraq, uh, Akkadian, uh, a huge collection of cuneiform tablets. But we also have some of this early purchase of David Gordon Lyon that he went to the Middle East and acquired it. These were antiques of his time, and this is jewelry, costumes, tools, weapons from the turn of the century, sort of the 19th, early 20th century material. So both antiquity and antiques, all pertaining to the history and culture of the Middle East. We have been working together to prepare a new exhibit called Mediterranean Marketplaces. And it was kind of your brainchild. Uh, so can you describe what it's going to be about and your thinking behind the themes and its design? Mediterranean Marketplaces is really built upon one main feature of an existing exhibit. This old exhibit was called Houses of Ancient Israel, and it was installed in 2003. Uh, the museum was known for this exhibit in particular because it had this house reconstruction 
Iron Age house that was almost full-scale cutaway view in, in the gallery. And the time had come to replace the show. Uh, the house was popular and important and unique to our region, but I wanted to reframe the show so it wasn't just focused upon the construction of a home and the, the organization of a family in ancient Israel, but could really serve a bigger picture for us. And I really wanted to broaden this picture but also highlight some of our unique collection of objects, right? bring up more authentic pieces. The exhibit is really focused upon the movement of goods, people, and ideas around the ancient Mediterranean. So where modern consumers have access to the internet for shopping, the ancient people also had access to complex markets in, in their time. And they could really produce goods that were distributed around the region. So the house now will serve as the representation of the place of production and also consumption for these agricultural products. But it's just one piece of a much bigger picture. Another thing that you have that we're going to have on display are some amphora from a shipwreck. Can you first off define amphora and talk a little bit about where they came from? An amphora is a word that refers to a transport vessel. Uh, not a vessel as in a ship, but a vessel as in a ceramic jar. These were what I call the cardboard boxes of the ancient world. You could pack just about anything in them from liquids to solids and grain. And these were stacked in holds of ships and transported around the Mediterranean. The ship is actually going to be reconstructed, sort of a cutaway view and we are going to stack a large number of these amphora in them. These amphora came from two shipwrecks that were excavated on the bottom of the Mediterranean, sort of between Israel and Egypt, by a former director of the museum and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, were two of the major sponsors. And I'm really excited that we finally, for the first time, we get to exhibit these pieces in the museum in this kind of unique display, a nice parallel to the house. You have, we'll have this big house reconstruction on one side and a ship reconstruction on the other side of the gallery really to balance each other out. In addition to that, we'll then look at some of the transformative ideas that moved around the Mediterranean as well, along with these goods, sort of things like ironworking and glass blowing and the development of coinage. And so that gives us an opportunity to exhibit pieces related to those ideas, sort of some metalwork. We'll ha actually have some, some of our coinage displayed for the first time since the 50s and some beautiful glass. But this, this ship reconstruction is really going to be a nice highlight for us and a great new piece and really exciting to show these shipwrecked objects. For me, uh, there's one highlight in the ship in particular, and it's this chalice. This chalice would have been used for burning aromatics, sort of um, offerings for a good journey or a safe journey. And this would have been part of either the captain or the ship's crew's personal effects. And clearly our ships did not have a successful journey and all the crew probably died. And so it's kind of a poignant reminder of, of the dangers of long distance travel. These people died in doing this and we were actually able to capture some of their, their personal effects. So you talked about some of the objects that'll be featured. Do you have a favorite in the exhibit? I don't have a, a particular favorite that's, that sort of stands out above everything else with the exception of maybe that chalice that I mentioned. That, that piece is 
just a nice representation of what happened to the ships that we're looking at. The hopes and dreams of the sailors to, to make a great profit, to have a safe journey, and how those hopes and dreams had been dashed. And, and sort of the, this must have been a devastating loss for the owners of the ships. Obviously, there was the, the, the tragedy of the crew that went down. I wish we had had the opportunity to excavate more of the ship, all the objects that were on display for us were actually visible on the surface and were simply scooped up by the rover. But they never excavated down below these these amphora to see if there's any wood preserved below the mud. So the wrecks are still there. The opportunity exists. And there's still a lot to be discovered down there. Our Iron Age wrecks are some of the, of the oldest wrecks that have been identified uh, in deep water. And I hope at some point that uh, archaeologists will be able to return to the site. But the, you know, the ship is only one one aspect of our show. I think people are going to find a lot of personal interest to them. If you're interested in ancient coinage, there are some great pieces. We have some beautiful glass that's there. Some objects of beauty in what I'm calling sort of the luxury cabinet, the, the luxuries that would also have been traded around the region. There are some unique pieces there. There's some great metal, a little metal cat statue, and we have uh, weapons. I, I, <laughs> it doesn't seem that important or exciting to some, but I'm pretty excited about, we have a, crucible, which is ceramic, where you would melt the copper and then pour it into a mold. And so we have examples of that. There's some nice jewelry I think people will appreciate as well. And of course, if you were happy with the house, if you enjoyed the house, if you're familiar with our house, a lot of the objects that were originally exhibited in the house were, were bringing back again. That's great. Including some of the amphora, right? Including some of the amphora, yeah. Yeah, but actually positioned in the house, which is really cool. You'll see them in the house, too, right? So like as if the farmers bought some of the wine that came from the, uh, up the coast. It's a full story. <laughs> what do you hope visitors come away from the exhibit understanding? I hope that our visitors will come away with an awareness and appreciation for the fact that the people of the Mediterranean or the ancient Mediterranean were not just some dirty peasants huddled around a fire and, and never leaving their squalid little hovel. They lived sophisticated lives. They were connected to a broader world, much as we are today. And so, in fact, we're indebted to these ancient people for many of the things that we still rely upon today, like written language and coinage and glass and such. So in the end, I hope that I can help make people feel connected to the past. I suppose that's what I spend my career doing, is trying to find these, these details of the past that can excite people in the present about what came before them. So I, I want people to feel a connection to the ancient Mediterranean and the collections that we carry. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to Adam Aja and the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East for their time and expertise. See you next week.